I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's issue comes once again from my recent MK3D show live at the BFI South Bank. It was a packed show. We had to split it over two podcasts. On last week's pod, we heard from Anna Smith, Bertie Carvel, and Spencer director Pablo Larraín. This week, it's the turn of Tom Palmer and Tom Sturton, a.k.a. Totally Tom, talking about their dark comedy, All My Friends Hate Me, and the great Mike Lee, currently the subject of a major retrospective at the BFI. So sit back, relax, and take a front row seat for MK3D, live at the BFI South Bank. Okay, so now here's uh, here's, uh, an odd thing. There was uh, another movie that was to be at the LFF. Um, It had played at Tribeca, and they were going to have their premiere... I'm sorry, I'll get out of the way. Don't mind me, I just work here. Um, And they were going to have their premiere at the LFF at the Prince Charles. And in a very kind of old-fashioned way, the projector broke down, which actually I'm kind of quite nostalgic about that sort of thing. Here is the trailer for the film, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Everybody loves you, PD. Just so you know, you're not doing too well. What? Ow! Sorry! Apparently one of the funniest guys on the planet. Now, here's the great thing. The film is actually every bit as good as the trailer suggests, which is really, really good. Please welcome to the stage Tom Sturton and Tom Palmer, who are going to have their premiere right here in this theatre the minute we're all finished. So, Tom and Tom. Tom. Hi. Hi, Tom. Hi. <laughs> and I know, so totally Tom, isn't it? It was the, the that, group. That's the sketch group, yeah, we started as about 10 years ago. So, um, you, so you started as an onstage stand-up comedy? Yeah, so we were comedy double act. Um, we released a little thing on YouTube um, about a, a sad student who puts on a, a house party that fails. And, um, and then we just started getting into writing. We did a bit, bits and pieces for TV, and then this is our 
our first kind of foray into the film world. Okay, well, it's fabulous that the premiere is going to be here because this is such a beautiful... Yeah. There are still a few tickets left, so if you like what you hear in the next 10 minutes, <laughs> you can go straight out of this afterwards and come straight back in again for the premiere. And I think other members of the filmmakers, other, other filmmakers are here for the... That's right, yeah. I mean, we had the full cast and crew and everyone for the, for the aborted premiere last week, um, but we've managed to salvage a, a, a few of them, so hopefully some of that, that excitement yeah. still bottled for tonight. It's an odd moral to the story. You know, get your first premiere cancelled and then get given a much bigger one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, but in a way, it's kind of like you know everything happens. I don't actually. I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. I think that's utter nonsense. But it's you know it's like so. Describe the film uh, for for our audience here in terms that won't spoil it for them. That won't you tell them. But describe the film for them. Guy is he's just returned from uh, working abroad. He's turning thirty one, and he gets an invite from his old uni mates to celebrate his birthday at one of their houses in the country. Um, and he's gone off and led a very sort of separate life. Yes. Then. Yeah. And and everyone is just kind of horrible to him, or or are they? Uh, and um, he sort of is the film is him kind of struggling with the question is it in his head um, do his friends hate him or, or, or you know has he done something wrong and it's kind of just yeah playing with that and it kind of skirts the boundary between comedy and horror because there is a suggestion early on that this is all going to turn very very nasty he has a strange encounter with somebody yeah. in a car and then he arrives at this very very sort of big posh house and there is a character who turns up who we can't quite get the measure of. Describe that character for me. Well, he's this guy who um, the friends say they met in the pub and thought he was um, so much fun that they wanted to invite him to his birthday as a bit of a sort of novelty joke. But then Tom's character is sure that he recognises him and he seems to be kind of behind all of the the kind of mischief and the and the nasty things that are happening to Tom's character over the weekend. Um, so it feels like he's this sort of, yeah, this this kind of evil guy who's come to kind of you know basically just curse him with the worst birthday ever. Um, and it all builds towards this big reveal about who he is, which obviously which we obviously won't, we, won't we won't do now. now. So tell me something about that balance between comedy and horror. I mean, when you're you know, how do you get that right? I mean, what well, I mean. I hope we did. I like the film. You wouldn't be here otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a lot in the edit, wasn't I it? Think, I think yeah. we, we sort of did it. Um, we would do kind of variations on takes so that we had in the bag something that was a bit more leading into the comedy a bit okay. more and then, and then one that was a bit more sort of dramatic and then in the edit we, we yeah, know, had something to play with in terms Exactly of and I think yeah the editor was so good at giving us different versions of each scenes and you realised that it was such a kind of finely balanced narrative you had to play between sending the audience one way making it funny and then kind of like yeah. creating a sense of threat and So you literally do the thing on set of you, you'll do a, a funny version and then a darker version and then yeah, kind of, I mean, so there's a, there's a shooting scene and, and I was all up for doing lots of pratfalls and kind of firing the gun off and um, was really excited to see that in the film, but it got cut because there was a more restrained version of that, just yeah. as an example. But we, we also were very strapped for time, so I mean, we didn't, uh, yeah, it was a bit of, um, it, sometimes you, you get, you just have to pick one way of doing it and go for it. Yeah, it was just kind of coming up to Tom every now and then with the director and just being like, that one's Tone funny. it down. <laughs> yeah, that one's too funny. Um, make it a bit more scared. So how um, do you write together? What do you do? Do you sit in the same room and do it together or do you send drafts to each other? 
we do, apparently this is quite rare, but we do have one page that we kind of like take turns on. I think a lot of writers send drafts back and forth, but we have, yeah, we usually sit in the same room. Since the pandemic, we've, we've you know, obviously been working on Zoom yeah, yeah. and stuff. Um, but yeah, we do kind of just go line by line and sort of improvise as we're going. So what tends to happen is when we have written a scene, even though it will take a, a while to get each line out, that will probably be close to the final draft of that scene. It's, it's like we're kind of revising it as we go, um, rather than some people, I think, will write a draft, send it to their co-writer, then they'll do a draft, and then they'll kind of gradually get there. Yeah, back. and we've been doing it long enough now so that we can sort of pour scorn on each other's attempts and for, to not take it personally, yeah. which is, uh, helps. And do you manage to not take it personally? Yeah. <laughs> no, less yeah. and less. Yeah, yeah. Less no, I think it's mu- it is much easier now to just be like, you know what, that is that's just a crap idea. Let's move on. Yeah. And uh, and you just save so much time. I think when we were first starting out, when we were younger and uh, sort of on the sketch circuit, we were, you know, it, it was it was a harder pill to swallow when someone didn't like the idea, and it just became it was sort of a, a longer process to write. But competition to get the punchline was always yeah. kind of who gets to say that. Who, who gets to do so, the funny. So you met at school? Yes. Actually, before school. I think we met when we were 12, didn't we? At a, yeah. At a disco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. But, yeah, but then we became friends at school, and, um, and then we went to different universities, but that was actually when we started writing comedy and, and putting things on YouTube, and that's sort of how it, how it all started. So have you always had a natural report? I mean, I know the thing about, you know, the, the totally Tom and two Toms and, you know, because I can imagine if you're kids and you go, oh, it's Tom, oh, there's also Tom, you must yeah. be friends because you're both called Tom. Yeah. Have you always had that kind of, that comedy report? Yeah, we, we sort of bonded over, you know, like what was coming out of the time, um, Ali G. That was like a big, yeah. you know, thing just to sort of, and there wasn't, uh, sort of there's a lot of um, downtime at school. We would just watch comedy and DVDs together and I guess that so our sort of sensibility what's your favourite comedy film um, um, well, I like Hunt for the Wilder People is one of my favourite. Hunt, Hunt for the Wilder People is fabulous. Hunt for the Wilder People is fabulous. And you know the best line Hunt for the Wilder People? You can call him uncle. No, he can't. <laughs> uh, all, all my friends hate me. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's <laughs> Still tickets left. <laughs> okay, so you're going to have your premiere straight after this, right here in, uh, in screen one. And there are a couple of seats left. If you were going to sell the film to the audience, how would you pitch it to them? How would you sell to them? Literally, when you finish, you need to rush straight back in because go. It's, it's, it's a film like no other. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a dark comedy about social paranoia. I've yeah. not seen that before. Think, uh, think Peter's Friends, but, but written by Ben Wheatley. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to see Peter's Friends as directed by Ben Wheatley, and believe me, I would pay very good money to see that. It's on here straight away afterwards. I think it's, it's kind of nice that it didn't work out so that you are having it here. So I wish you every success with it. I hope the premiere tonight goes absolutely brilliantly. Tom and Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, uh, actually, I should pick my script up. Because there's some, no, it's over there. As you, look, you go ahead, sorry. It's, this is like literally I'm just getting in the way. So as you probably know, if you came into the BFI, you will have seen there are posters that there is a Mike Lee season kicking off, I think, immediately after this. And it's a retrospective of all of Mike's work. There are screenings and there are Q&As and uh, there'll be a chance to discuss things in the bar. Um, my love affair with Mike Lee's films goes back many, many years. If you're a regular here at MK3D, you'll know that Mike came on uh, to talk about Peter Liu just a few years ago. Also, if you listen to the podcast I do, uh, MK3D, uh, no, it's what's it called? Kermode on film. I'm getting really old. Um, I just did a thing about Nuts in May, which is one of my you know, favourite movies of all time. Anyway, I am delighted to say that in celebration of the Mike Lee season, Mike Lee is here with us. Please welcome Mike Lee. I heard this morning I was sent Mark's... Um, he's made a podcast where he, he goes to Dorset. You live down there, don't you? Yeah, in Hampshire, yeah. And um, he goes with his missus all around the Nuts in May locations acting out bits of the film. Uh, I, I thought it was great. The only thing I didn't like about it is it's better than the film. Here's the thing. My experience of... I know I've told this story before, but this is absolutely true. My experience of seeing Nuts in May for the first time was I had back surgery. This is back in the 90s. I collapsed and I was in hospital for quite a long time. And I had quite major back surgery, which, you know, at one point it all looked a bit dicky. Anyway, due to a brilliant neurosurgeon, all got through it fine. But I had to come out and I had to lie down for three or four weeks. And my wife went out and bought us a video, as it was then, of Nuts in May, because she said, this will cheer you up. <laughs> and if you've had back surgery, the two things you can't do is sneeze or laugh, because it moves everything around in your back. And I watched Nuts in May, and I was genuinely fearful that it was going to put me back in hospital. <laughs> because I have... I'm going to show a clip, because I could... Or, I mean, I could literally get up and just recite the whole thing for you. Um, just before we do, Mike, just tell us something about the age of play for today and, you know, where something like Nuts in May came from in terms of, you know, being able to make that kind of thing for television? Well, uh, Play for Today was a great series of in standalone, mostly films, not all, but some of them were studio plays, but most of them were films. And it was, really, it was a golden age um, because you... This is the BBC... It was very liberal, and really you could do whatever you liked in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, there weren't um, battalions of interferers and, if I may say so, wankers <laughs> who 
telling you what to make and committees. Of, there were, there was a producer. I'm so glad you said wankers in the first five minutes of being on stage. Oh, that's only the first five minutes. Um, but you know, there was just a producer with a few, with, with a small number of films, who whose prerogative it was to give the film to writers and directors, and uh, it, it was great. Um, the actual history of Nuts in May is, is slightly more complicated because um, we'd actually done a play at the theatre upstairs at the Royal Court yeah. called Wholesome Glory, which is where we invented Keith and Candice Marie. And the play was about um, Keith and Candice Marie bullying Keith's brother, Dennis, coming around for tea on a Sunday afternoon, uh, which was the prototype for the scene in Nazi May where they bully Ray and yeah. sing the zoo song. Um, and while we were making the play, uh, working on it, uh, we said it would be great to take these guys out into the country and, and expose them to the elements. And sometime later, uh, at a point in time when I'd made one uh, television film, Hard Labour, with yeah. Tony Garnett. I um, went to, was invited to Birmingham to the Pebble Mill, the English Regions drama, and did a short play there, a studio play, a half hour play. And I gathered that David Rose, who was the in charge of the plays there, had a film he didn't know what to do with. He'd got, he'd got all these films were committed except there was one slot. And I went to him and I said, can I do the film? And he said, well, how do I know if you don't, can't tell me what it is? How do I know? Actually, he said, how do I know that somebody, it won't be the, you won't make the same film that somebody else has written? Yeah. I said, I think that's very unlikely. <laughs> said, um, do you know who I am? Exactly. Well, I, <laughs> no, no, I know, but nobody did that. No, exactly. But. And, and, um, but he then said something really interesting. He said, look, we do all these English regions drama, and I'm, they're all set in the northwest and the north. They're all about working class characters in, the, in industrial. But I'm from Dorset, he said. If you can promise to make a film in Dorset, <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> so I thought, I'm Dorset. Where's that? I've never heard of it. <laughs> so we took Keith and Candice Marie, and uh, we sent them to Dorset on a camping holiday. And, the rest is history. Okay, so let's see Keith and Candice Marie um, at Corfe Castle. And as I said, I've just, you know, I went back there again to the locations and that I cannot walk around Corfe Castle without hearing Keith and Candice Marie. Here is a clip from the wonderful Nuts in May. Look at that, Corfe Castle. The castle was besieged by Cromwell and his treacherous forces. Where's the dungeons, Keith? What? Where, where are the dungeons? Well, why do you keep on about the dungeons? I want to know where they are. You seem to have a morbid interest in where the dungeons are. Dungeons? I want to know where they are, that's all. Come along! I should stop rushing, Keith. Look at that view! Look at that! That's wonderful. What's that, Keith? What? That. Oh, that's number four. Ah, oh, there's number 11. Now, that's the King's Tower. Wish I had the guidebook key. What? Why? How am I supposed to know what all these numbers are? Well, I'm telling you, aren't I? Now, there's number 8 over there. This is the Queen's Tower.
like hundreds of years ago. Yes. All the sort of uh, kings and queens walking about in all their fineries. Yes. And eating uh, great bowls of fruit and luscious grapes. And drinking wine out of golden goblets must have been lovely. <laughs> I can't tell you what a gas it is to be in a real place with all the resonance that you get from Corfe Castle and to sort of to make something which is both completely real because that is Corfe Castle it is. but at the same time is a who is a, is a giggle you know it's a great uh, I mean the contribution to that comic scene of Corfe Castle is not to be underestimated. No, absolutely. Do, and I take it you've seen Ben Wheatley's Sightseers, which is I a have. film which owes a huge debt to yes, Nazi ap- Apparently, he has been through various phases of saying so and denying it. Is that true? <laughs> so initially, what he said was, he said that he hadn't seen Nazi in May at the time that he made Sightseers. And we did a gag at, when I interviewed him for the Culture Show in which... I was on the phone, I said, yeah, it's, it's Nazi May with axes, and then he kills me with an axe for saying it. He then later on confessed that he had seen Nazi May, because clearly he'd seen Nazi May, so I think it's now out in the open that the Sightseers is Nazi May with axes. Did you like Sightseers? Yes. Good. Um, the, the, uh, the retrospective is covering your entire career. I want to leap decades forward to Secrets and Lies, and I want to show a scene from Secrets and Lies which had five Oscar nominations, including two for both the actors that we're going to see uh, in this scene, and you, I believe, for Best Director and Best Screenplay. Am I right in remembering that correctly? And I remember interviewing you in Hollywood when the Oscars were happening, because there was this, this, this whole kind of round delay. I know that you've done this more times than once, but there was this whole round delay of stuff. You know, they've been canned and everything. And I said, how are you finding it all? And you said, well, the most important thing is it draws attention to the work. Everything else doesn't matter. Is that genuinely how it felt? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, <laughs> you make a film and, you know, you take it to Cannes, it wins the Palme d'Or and a Best Award for Brenda Blethyn. Um, then you get Oscar nominations, and um, uh, it gets a massive amount of attention. And it, uh, the, the bottom line is, it absolutely affected the life and progress of the film. Okay. It's my best, my, my um, most successful film commercially, internationally. And what's remarkable about this scene that we're going to watch is... I mean, I've talked to you before about how you work with actors. It is still, to me, a mysterious process, but I'm happy for that, that how, how it to be. A lot of what we're watching is one shot in which the incredible emotional range happens in one shot. And it looks to me like you must have only done this once because I can't imagine the actors going through this again. So I'm going to ask you that afterwards. So here is a scene from Secrets of Lies that I imagine many of you will know anyway. They shouldn't go raising your oats like that. It ain't fair. Is this your signature? This is stupid. I don't understand it. I mean, I can't be your mother, can I? Why not? Well, look at me. What? Listen, I don't mean nothing by it, darling, but I ain't never been with a black man in my life. No disrespect nor nothing. 
I'd have remembered, wouldn't I? I can't look at you. I didn't know, sweetheart. Honest, I didn't know. What didn't you know? I didn't know you was black. That literally reduces me to tears every time I see it. Can you say something about it? Because I'm a bit lost. <laughs> well, it has moved me too, to be honest. Um, just to go to what you said just before you showed the yeah. clip. Um, I mean, I think there were quite several takes. Actually, I, I, I never know whether to declare this or not. We actually shot reverses too. Oh, wow. Um, but once we got into the cutting room, because you never know when you're filming, when you're shooting a film, you know, whether you might think a thing holds up, but then you, when it comes to it, it might just drag a bit, or you just don't know. So we did shoot uh, sh shots so that we could cut into them. But once we saw it, we knew that it you know, and the best take, which is what that is, obviously. Yeah. So, the thing about we can only, presumably you said we could only have done it once, that's yeah. not, not the case. What is the case is that apart from the months and months of building up to that moment through the development of the characters and the relationships over the years and years and all the rest of it, that, and this is standard on all of my films, when it came to it, we, you know, we went to the location and we began by it. They improvised and improvised, and then we broke it down. And through rehearsal, which is what we always do, we scripted it carefully. And of course, that's the thing. It's not scripting separately on paper. It's scripting by rehearsing it. Yeah, so yeah. it's completely integrated and organic. <laughs> and then we showed it to the to Dick Pope, the cinematographer, and the gang. And while it was being lit and everything, we, we, the girls were in the bus, within the catering bu dining bus, you know. And they just ran it and ran it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it till they were absolutely on top of it. Yeah. And that, that means that when it comes to shooting it, they were completely in it and sailing. And 
they were both nominated for Oscars. Yeah, and, you know, correctly so. It is astonishing, Mike. You know, I mean, I apologise for my emotional reaction, but it's so powerful. I can't watch it. But, you know, I mean, it's very interesting. The conversation you had earlier with, with Bertie Carville about character acting. Yeah. Um, I make no bones about it. This is character acting. This is not Marianne Jean-Baptiste. It is not Brenda Blethyn. It is consummate, top of the top of the range. Yeah. Uh, you know, perfect genius character acting. Yeah. And that's what I'm into really with my actors. Okay, I'm going to change the tone. I'm going to show a clip from Topsy Turvey. I have to tell you, I've confessed this to you before. When I first heard that you were making a film about Gilbert and Sullivan, I thought you were making a film about Gilbert O'Sullivan, genuinely, because <laughs> that seemed to me to make sense. Well, I, I've heard you say that before, and I just want, all I want to know is whether Gilbert O'Sullivan thought I was making a film. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's watch a clip. Advertising quack who wearies with tales of countless cures. His teeth I've enacted shall all be extracted by terrified amateurs. The musical singer attends a series of masses on fugues and ops by barking to woven with modern day token and classical Monday pops. The billiard sharp whom anyone catches his doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell on a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stores on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. My object all sublime, I shall achieve in time to let the punishment fit the crime, the punishment fit the crime. And make his prisoner vent, unwillingly represent a source of innocent merriment, of innocent merriment. His object all sublime, he will achieve in time. have chosen that clip. I'm sorry, Mike, it's my show. I know. <laughs> but I think, I mean, one of the things about doing that is obviously you actually had to stage stage the numbers. I mean, it's like, it's like giving yourself a double thing to do. You have to make the film, but you also have to do the theatrical production. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, what we did was, first of all, the, the several extracts from the three uh, Savoy operas that are in the film. Yeah we went back to the original, Gilbert's original prompt copy, and we simply meticulously replicated Gilbert's staging. Right. So I didn't, there was no interpretation on my part, plus the fact that that was really executed by the brilliant choreographer Francesca Janes. So I didn't really, myself, direct the actual um, extract from the operas, except in the earlier, there's an extract from the Sorcerer, which is rather more elaborately yeah. done, and I obviously had more input in that. But I, I wasn't really concerned to include my own interpretations of the operas, because that really wasn't the point of the film. And were, you, were you a Gilbert and Sullivan fan? I was, and I am. And f from early days, had you always loved yeah, this stuff? Yeah, as a kid, yeah. 
and what was it about it that spoke to you? Well, you know, it, Gilbert and Sullivan are the roots of all the great musicals. All the great American composers of musicals, uh, writers and composers, all look back to Gilbert and Sullivan as their influence. Yeah. And what's your favourite Gilbert O'Sullivan song, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know any of them? Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. I want to end with something. I'm going to show a clip from Peter Lou. This is a, a fairly sort of traumatic clip. It's, it's, the, it's the massacre itself. And I think the thing that, the reason I wanted to show this was because in this retrospective of your work, it runs the gamut from dramas that are set in, you know, contained locations with a limited number of people to, to Peterloo, which is a huge production. I'm just going to show a couple of minutes from this scene because this sequence goes on for a very long time and it's really, really gripping and horrifying. I have the impression that watching this, you must have had thousands of extras. But knowing the way that you make films, I wonder whether you did. I'm going to show the clip and then I'm going to ask you that, okay? In terms of dramatic impact, you know, it's Eisenstein, it's Abel Gantz, it's that level of kind of power. And I remember seeing it the first time in a, in, in a cinema and almost having a panic attack as a result of it. How was it to film? I mean, the, I think the first thing to just, which is kind of obvious, but I feel I ought to say, is that um, quite a lot, a lot of what you just saw in that clip in the first place, I mean, draws from events that actually took place yeah, absolutely. In, de in detail. Um, it was extraordinary. To I mean, it was a, uh, it was great. It was tough. Yeah, I bet. It took five weeks to shoot this sequence. But, you know, the credit goes to a whole gang of people. Brilliant young first assistant director, Dan Channing-Williams, son of my late producer, Simon Channing-Williams. Um, Dick Pope, of course, cinematographer who I've worked with on everything Second since Life is Sweet, and a whole gang of people. Um, every single actor that's in the film, I worked with individually on, a char on characters in the way that I do. The various elements um, in this whole sequence, you know, uh, the family, the guys on the, uh, on the hustings, the... The, the, the yeomanry, the magistrates in the house. I, I worked separately on all the elements so that we could put them all together. You said an interesting thing just before you showed the clip um, that y y you presumed we didn't have many extras. No, I presume when I watched it, I thought it's like thousands, and I thought about the way that you make films, and I thought. Well, it's actually the reason there weren't thousands isn't because of the way I make films. There were actually. We had 200 extras. Now, 200 extras in the fort at Tilbury, where we shot it, would have looked like a small, tiny number of tourists yeah. around with a lot of space around them. So, technology 
CGI, crowd replication. It was brilliant. You, you haven't seen it so much in what you've just shown, because that's quite a close yeah, yeah. Uh, sequence. But it, that's the way we did it. Uh, and again, a little, a great gang of assistant directors helping us to do that. And I didn't really deal with the replication thing, which you know, <coughs> that was carried out as well. Um, we shot quite a lot of it with this, that sequence with three cameras, which we never do. Yeah. We, I was bullied um, when we were in pre-production. I can't imagine you ever being bullied. Yeah, no, that does happen. By, bullied in a positive way by, okay. by my, my producer and others, saying, we think you ought to have um, a storyboard artist. We ought to, to do a storyboard, which is, as everybody knows, is a kind of um, strip cartoon version of exactly what you're going to shoot frame by frame, pretty much. Even Dick Pope said, maybe you should think about it, because this is different from everything else we've done. Yeah. And I absolutely dug my heels in and I said, no, it will, it will stitch us up. If we, have, if we do that, we won't be able to work like we work. And what will happen is the storyboard artist will wind up either in his or her caravan or in hospital, because I'll break their legs. <laughs> so... We didn't. And of course, it was great that we didn't because we did it like we've shoot everything, including the other clips you've shown, which is to make the action happen and then look at it and decide by being there how to treat it, how to shoot it. And I think that's that organic way of working is um, what it's all about. Well, Mike, look, as I said, the series kicks off immediately after this. I think it's Nuts in May is playing in one of the theatres straight after this. There is an amazing body of work there. Um, I would encourage everybody to go. And, if, you, if there's any films you haven't seen of Mike's, go and see them. There's not a single one that isn't worth your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank Ladies you. and gentlemen, the great Mike. Thank you. I know, I know that we're overrunning slightly, but, you know, uh, but there we are. Um, we can always finish with uh, Sound of Vision with a, a nice bit of music at the end of the show. Uh, as you probably know, Respect is currently playing in cinemas. We've got a great central force by Jennifer Hudson. Um, film itself, not quite as good as her performance. However, we thought that we would end with a bit of Aretha Franklin from the Blues Brothers. Here is the mighty Aretha. You better think, think, think about what's trying to do to me. just an excuse to play that loud really okay so we have to get out because as you know uh, all my friends hate me is coming in here for its premiere straight afterwards as I said, there are a few tickets left so if you if you like the sound of it please do come back uh, there's so many people there, oh, I'm gonna forget so th join me in thanking in the order that we did them Anna Bertie Pablo Tom Tom and Mike 
Uh, Nick and Hedda and everybody that organised the show. Duncan! <laughs> Who's going to go back and watch Titane really soon. Thank you to the BFI. Thanks, everybody, for coming. It really means a lot to me that you all turned out, and I think we're, I think we're back on track now. Uh, sorry for getting emotional, but hey, the film was really good. Okay, stay safe. See you soon. Well, there we are. That was the second half of my recent MK3D show recorded live at the BFI Southbank. If you missed the first half, it's still available on last week's podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, and check out our Patreon page, which has loads of video extras. If you like the sound of the MK3D live shows, you can come along in person. Just go to the BFI website for tickets. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 